Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever gotten really, really mad at someone? I think everybody has that happen to them, right? You're really, really mad. Well, the title of my message this morning is Forgiveness and Loving. Forgiveness in Loving. And I've, my 20 years as a pastor here, I've, I've um, delivered a sermon on forgiveness at least three times, maybe more. Um, I think the act of forgiveness is very important. Jesus thinks it's important too. In the, in the Lord's Prayer, he has it right there up with having food. And we all like food. But it's really important. If any of you here today were to sit and have a cup of coffee with me, I think that one of us would probably remark, you know, isn't the world a mess? So many terrible things are happening everywhere. And things are a mess on the world stage, but they're also a mess on the national stage. They're a mess on the local stage. They're a mess everywhere. They're a mess in our social and personal lives, especially in our families. There are tragedies. Things are, there's, a, there's a problem throughout the world. There's misunderstandings. There's disappointment. There's anger and violence. All of these, all of these things fuel tensions that sever relationships. I think these severed relationships can only be resolved with some level of forgiveness. Another statement that one of us might say over the same cup of coffee is, you know, only God can fix our world. And that's true, isn't it? But how would he do it? Well, all we know about how God does things is found in Holy Scripture. And I believe that as we study how God fixes things, especially broken human relationships, you'll see that the driving force God uses is forgiveness and love. But first, with all the turmoil in Europe and in the Middle East, I think as your pastor I have to say something about this. I want to assure you, I want to assure everyone that on the world stage, there is eventually going to be peace. God is going to handle all of these tragedies. And we know this from Scripture. Now, in your bulletin, you're going to see that there's a piece of paper in there, all right? And the paper is in your hands because I was late in getting the information to the slide person to put slides on the screen. So... These are your slides, but on here I'll refer to them from time to time, so I I do invite you to make sure you have one and pick it up. But if you'll notice on one page at the top, uh, there are some passages from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And, you know, somebody once told me, I don't know where I heard it, but it kind of makes sense in a way. They said that if we only had chapter 1 and the first two passages of chapter 2, we would, have to, we would have all we need to know about God and his creation. All we need to know about what's going to happen. And I'll, I'll just read day 6. It says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And then it goes on to say, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The person that told me this is that on the sixth day, everything was good, very good, God said. But on the seventh day, he rests. But between the sixth day and the seventh day, metaphorically, we've been dealing with tragedy in human history. But we're heading towards the seventh day when God rests. And we can know that our Lord and Savior is coming back and he will bring in a new world. We just pray all the while that there can be peace, love, and forgiveness in the meantime and that we can have a part in that. So I'm not going to talk about the world, national, regional, local conflicts. Rather, I want us today to focus on applying God's word to dealing with our personal, social, and family issues. Specifically, I want to look fresh at the way God's love and forgiveness are extended to each of us. And then consider how God's example can be applied to how we love and forgive others. We need to follow God's model for how we live our lives. Why? Because God is perfect. All of his ways are perfect. We read this in Deuteronomy. He's a rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Throughout Old Testament scriptures, we read the command for God's people to have the fear of the Lord. Having the fear of the Lord is having an awe and reverence for the Almighty God. Solomon teaches that the reverence for God is put into our souls as we seek to know him from Scripture. Look at Proverbs. It's on the sheet. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you accept my words and store up my commands within you, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Throughout scripture, we read descriptions of God's majesty. There are hundreds of them. There's probably more than a hundred of them. A friend of mine here in this room today could tell you probably exactly how many there are. But there's a lot of instances in the Bible that talk about the majesty of God. Praise God that we had the prophets that would teach us about the majesty of God and what we just read. But, you know, we also have people who have endeavored humanly to write about who God is and what his, what his attributes are. And there's a, there's a man named Adam Clark who lived in the 17th century. He was a theologian and pastor from England, and he wrote these words, and it's on the sheet. It's titled, God Is. You can look at it. Adam Clark wrote these things. He said, God is the eternal, independent, and self-existent being. God is the being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. God is he who is absolute in dominion. God is the purest, the simplest, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made. God is illimitable in his immensity, 
inconceivable in his mode of existence and indescribable in his essence. God is known fully only by himself because an infinite mind can only be fully comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who, from his infinite wisdom, cannot err or be deceived, and from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just and right and kind. There's another theologian who I admire. I admire his wisdom, and he's more recent. He was in 20th century. He died early in the uh, the 21st century. His name is Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard, in his book, one of his books, he made specific reference to Adam Clark's writing here, and he made this comment. He said this, and it's on the sheet. He says, think of someone whose every action, whose slightest thought or inclination automatically assumes the reality of the God Adam Clark describes. When you do this, you have captured nothing less than the thought of Jesus himself, along with the faith and life he came to bring. Jesus' teachings are the teachings of God, and they're perfect. So let's look at one of the first scriptural examples of God's divine love and forgiveness and how we might model that love and forgiveness to others who we share our lives with. I want to bring us back to the book of Genesis again. When man fell into sin in the garden, we all know the story. Adam was brought to the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, you can eat anything in the garden, but you can't eat from the fruit of this tree. And then God created Eve, his wife, and Adam's responsibility was to instruct his wife what to do or not do, and he instructed her to the best of his ability, I guess. But then we know that the story goes on that the serpent comes along and encourages the wife, Eve, to think, you know, God doesn't want you to have that fruit because then you'll be like him. And she's deceived into thinking, well, the fruit looks good. I think I should take it. But not only does she take it, but she gives it to her husband, and the two of them eat it. And immediately, we all know what happens. They recognize they're naked, and they go and hide from God, and then God shows up in the garden, and he says, where are you? What's up? God knew where they were. A month ago in a night Bible study, I posed this question to the group. I said, what would have happened if Adam and Eve had not tried to make excuses for their disobedience? What would have happened if they had asked for forgiveness? Well, that didn't happen. They, of course, they made excuses. Adam said, she gave it to me. And she said, The serpent deceived me. Have you ever wondered why they just didn't plead for forgiveness? Well, there's a very good reason why they didn't plead for forgiveness. They were no longer able to see or love God as they had before they sinned. 
They were now infected with the greed and pride of fallen man. They were corrupted by evil. And as we all know, this corruption has been passed on to all of humanity, even to this day, into all of us. But now consider this also. Did God say anything about the need for them to plead for forgiveness? No. Did he say that if they prayed for forgiveness, they would then be returned to the garden? No. God also didn't say that he no longer loves them. He just said there are going to be consequences. You're going to experience pain and living and mortal death. But he didn't say you're going to have eternal death. The only creature God condemns to eternal death is the serpent, Satan. God tells the serpent that there will be one coming into the world, we know it to be Jesus, to destroy him. And we also now know that the power of God for destroying the serpent is the light and love of God himself. No other power but God's power of light and his unconditional love can destroy Satan or remove this curse from man. So until the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, man waited for this promised Savior. But yet they, we understood before Jesus came into the world, man understood his attributes. That's what we just read about in Scripture. The prophets and the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets to write about the one who was to come. So we knew who was coming. Looking on the insert, Psalm 103, we read, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, Slow to anger and abounding in love, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As far as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And then the prophet Micah writes, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Mankind waited for a Savior. But not until Jesus came did mankind understand or embrace God's divine, unconditional love. Jesus brought God's light, unconditional love, and forgiveness and grace. We see in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it because the light has destroyed it. All of Jesus' teachings and actions perfectly reveals the heart and wisdom of God. James writes, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, impartial, and sincere. 
God's ways are perfect. And so we seek to learn from his perfection and how we see it in the scriptures. So to summarize this, I say this. God deals with man's sin and restores mankind to a right relationship with him. That's what his plan was. God never eternally condemns man. He only eternally condemns evil, the devil. God never stops loving mankind. Rather, in love, God promises a Savior. God promises a Savior. Yet for man to be brought back into a right relationship with God, man must witness and embrace the overwhelming, gracious, unconditional love of God. And then man must completely renounce evil. And then too, by being forgiven by God's love, then live a life of ongoing repentance. And that baptism, people who are forgiven and followers of Jesus profess these things. Now, you know that asking forgiveness of sin especially over the last hundred years or so, often precedes a profession of faith for many people. We call this, the doing, doing this is called the sinner's prayer. Asking God to forgive your sins and then come into your life as Lord. The motives are to have a right relationship with God and to know that you will go to heaven after death. Honestly, honestly, Millions of people have begun a meaningful life of faith after after reciting the sinner's prayer. But the question is, what truly draws people to be followers of Jesus? It's not the sinner's prayer. Rather, it's they're embracing God's unconditional love and forgiveness. God loves everyone and wants us all to be his people. We see this in the book of 1 Timothy. But the truth is, is that it is grace, not the fear of hell, that draws God's people to him. And as we embrace God's grace, we simultaneously receive unconditional forgiveness. Our role as followers of Jesus is then to model God's love in the way we live our lives. That's the most important thing for all of us to do. For some of us, our role is also telling people about God's love and the gospel of Jesus. Not all of us serve that way, though, in the kingdom. But after that, the Holy Spirit does the work of changing people's hearts to God when we present the love of God in Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ people are they're drawn to that just today in Proverbs Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 19 he says what a person desires is unfailing love isn't that true Isn't that true?
I don't know if this happens to you, but people often complain to me that Christianity seems to be like a club made up of sometimes what they consider mean people. hate to tell you. People who say that, they're said to, well, if you want to be a Christian, you have to first say those magic words. And unless you do, you're not going to heaven. I don't know, have people made that complaint to you in family or outside of the church? Maybe as a pastor, I get it more than other people do. But they also say something like this, which is often very provocative. They say, my God is bigger than that. (laughs) My God is bigger than that. You know, in a way, they're right to make this complaint because the people saying these things are not really representing the Christian faith properly. People aren't drawn to be in God's kingdom by being afraid of hell. They're drawn into being in God's kingdom because of the love, the unfailing, unconditional love of God for them. Listen, and this is true. God does not stand there tapping his feet and saying something like this. Unless you first forgive, you're not coming in. That's not going to happen. That's not the way it happens. That is not the way it works. The way it happens is God's love and forgiveness draws people to be in his kingdom. And in response, people then confess, and then they pledge to repent and turn from their sins. And then for the rest of their lives, they're always finding that they need to ask for forgiveness because they love God so much. God lovingly forgives even before our confession or our repentance. It's his nature, and as his followers, we should follow his lead in how we forgive others. There may be someone in your life that you're having a hard time forgiving. Somebody who's really made you mad. Question is, should you decide to lovingly forgive them even before they ask for forgiveness? You say, well, it might be easy for God, but I'm having trouble. I'm having difficulty doing this. A 20th century theologian named Donald Guthrie, he wrote, and it's on the page here, he wrote this. He said, one feature which relates to human forgiveness but which may throw light on divine forgiveness is the obligation of the offended person to take the initiative in setting the process of reconciliation in motion. In other words, going to the person who has offended you and somehow or other conveying by the way you interact with them that you forgive them. Hopefully, even saying the words. It's powerful. It's powerful. There's a man I know who shortly before the end of his life asked God to help him forgive. He had a lingering grudge with 
that she led him to not forgive someone for many, many years of his life. He was on his deathbed almost. One day, while visiting with one of his best friends, he admitted this in a prayer to God. And in that prayer and in his heart, he then lovingly forgave the person from his soul. And I believe he did this without expecting or needing the other person to ask for forgiveness. But the end result, regardless, was peace from a long, painful grudge that festered for years. I remember another story that many of you may remember, if you're as old as I am. But early in the in the, for this century, in Pennsylvania, there was a, a fellow who went into a school for Amish little girls. And he broke into that school with a gun, and he shot and killed five children, injured a few more, and then shot himself. It was a terrible tragedy. Unfortunately, this tragedy keeps playing out over and over again. But it was a terrible tragedy. And you know, the gunman's parents, the mom and dad, they were devastated. They were devastated that their son had done such a thing. But that very evening, the evening of the crime, mothers from the Amish community went to the gunman's mother's home. And they forgave her. And they prayed for her. That only only comes from God's love. The gunman's mother had never asked for forgiveness for her son or her family. The Amish mothers of the children killed. They lovingly forgave first. Another good book to read, if you would buy it, is uh, written by a man named Philip Yancey. And Philip Yancey wrote a book which is titled, What's So Amazing About Grace? It's a great book. It's a good fast read. It's a good thing to read when you wake up in the middle of the night and you, you can't go back to sleep. But he writes in that book this. He says, forgiveness can often break the cycle of blame and pain. Breaking the chain of ungrace. Forgiveness offers a way out. It does not settle all the questions of blame and fairness. Often it pointedly evades those questions. But it does allow for the possibility for a relationship to start over. I like how Jesus tells us to pay attention to the day today. Not look backwards at what happened yesterday. And not even look too much forward. But today. And I think that you can draw from that that we are to deal with one instance at a time, one person at a time, and one day at a time. Never looking back always looking forward and to 
respond as followers of Jesus as people who have the Spirit of God in their hearts, as kingdom people who respond to situations in life with love and forgiveness and compassion. I really hope that if there's any broken relationships in your life, that this message today will help give you a path to reconciliation by following God's model of unconditional love and forgiveness in Christ. I know this, you'll certainly realize peace. Even if your forgiveness is not received or accepted. I've experienced that, and I know what I'm saying is right. I'll end with this. Jesus said this. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. I'll add, as I have forgiven, you are to forgive. By everyone... By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another and if you forgive as I have forgiven you. I added that. Let's pray. God, this is powerful stuff because every one of us has had instances in our life where we've been very mad and the anger has overwhelmed us and caused us to have broken relations. God, this is the this is the this is the season in the year that always it comes to pass and it's such a it, the Thanksgiving table is where these kinds of things can happen and this is a tough time of the year for this. And so I pro, I, I pray, Lord, with all of us, Holy Spirit, be with us as we are with our family and as we break bread. If there are broken relationships, help us to move towards repairing those relationships with loving kindness and forgiveness. And if there are things said that would be normally causing us to have anger or disappointment, help us to just absorb them and to respond in love as well. Help us to love as you love. We ask this, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.